Welcome to the Forager Podcast, where I talk with cottage food businesses about their strategies for running a food business from home. I'm David Crable, and today I am talking with Joanne Littow. Joanne lives in Denver, Colorado, and sells homemade jams, jellies, and preserves with her cottage food business, The Jelly Jar. Joanne has always been very active in progressing Colorado's cottage food law, as well as expanding awareness of it. I remember visiting her booth at a market when I was in Colorado a few years ago, and I'm looking forward to hearing how her business has evolved since then. She has won awards for some of her creations, and I can personally confirm that her preserves are excellent. And with that, welcome to the show, Joanne. Nice to have you here. Thank you, David. It's nice to be here. So, Joanne, can you share with us how you got started in the cottage food industry and how you started your jelly business? Friends said to me, you ought to sell your jelly because it was so good. And I poo-pooed it for a while and they kept telling me I ought to sell it. So I did a cottage food producers food safety training back in 2014. And it has been cottage food jelly ever since. And I make jellies, jams, fruit butters, which are kind of like an applesauce, preserves, marmalades, and many of those have won prizes at the Boulder County Fair and also at the Arapahoe County Fair, both counties here in Denver. And that is how I got started. It was all my friends and now they get nothing. They have to buy it. (laughs) <laughs> I, I'm i I'm trying to remember when Colorado passed their cottage food law. Was that right around 2014? It was actually 2012 when they passed it through the, our legislature. And they did a fairly good revision in 2014 and then continued to revise things and add different products that were allowable under cottage food. Um, They allowed pickling. I do not pickle anything. It's a whole nother chapter in the life of cottage food. And that is very popular. And then they added, you could do chickens in some way. And I don't know anything about that. Uh, It's too far away from jellies. (laughs) Yeah, you stay within your zone of all those different kinds of preserves. Why do you think you have been so focused or where does the background come from for your passion about preserving fruit? It may have come from my mother who used to make some jellies, but I think it's more, it was something I could do and I could be proud of and people liked it and wanted more. So I just kept doing it. It's all mine. And I think that's where the the passion comes from also. Being involved with cottage foods, you get to know people all around the state and outside the state also. And we all talk to each other and tell each other uh, our different tales of what goes right, what goes wrong, and what could be improved. And we share recipes, and some are good, some are not so good. But it's become a, a community, and we're all there to support each other. And I think that support helps with the passion that everybody feels uh, about cottage foods and the production and and going on. And it's a good feeling 
to be part of a very positive, supportive group. Yeah, and I know that you are a big advocate for the cottage food law and movement and community in Colorado. I know you're asking, answering questions all the time about. Oh, you're reading the, law. the Facebook. <laughs> oh, I just know. Yeah, I know Joanne that you've been one of the most involved with the the Facebook group. I think, and I, I'm just going off of memory, honestly. But I I just know you're you always have something to say about cottage food. Well, I, I think it's a positive, good program that anybody can partake in, and it leads to positivity. It's, it's you know, you're standing there, and you're making your jellies and your jams, and you're canning them, and you're going through the whole process, and then you go and you load your car with the tent and the tables, and all the product and set yourself up at a Saturday market or whenever your market is. And people come by and they would taste jellies and they would ooh and ah and say, this is really great. And again, ask me, how did I get involved? And, you know, where do I live? And can I buy this? And can I buy that? And the conversation with another person and the laughter makes it kind of human too. It makes it very human. And that helps to, at least for me, want me to make it, make a better product, make a different product, make something that somebody has suggested and try it out. Not all suggestions are as positive as I'd like them to be. Not everybody likes what I make. I mean, one would think grape jelly would be a great seller. Well, it's not. (laughs) It can take six months for six jars of grape jelly to sell. Interesting. Because I feel like grape jelly is one of the most common jellies sold on the grocery store shelves. Yes, this is true. This is very true. And But I don't know. They don't want grape jelly from me. Maybe so, because they can so easily get it at the grocery store for a low price. <laughs> <laughs> Well, this is true. Two dollars for Welch's grape jelly is is a I want lot something cheaper. unique. And and your some of your preserves are unique. Can you talk about some of the flavors that you offer or I don't even know if flavors is the right word, but you do have unique products. Well, this year, this season, strawberry rhubarb is jam is walking off the shelves. Last year, a black forest preserve was walking off the shelf. And Black Forest is is a cherry chocolate and a little bit of either amaretto or almond extract. But that's all they bought last year was the Black Forest Preserve. This year, the only thing they're buying is the strawberry rhubarb. That's so funny how there's there's that trend or change without them even communicating with each other. I know. It's very, very odd. And here I was, I had prepared for a season of Black Forest. And so would you like Black Forest? And now I can't keep rhubarb in the rhubarb in stock. And before I found out that red wine jelly was not permissible here in Colorado, and I think it's got to do with the alcohol, that one was the most popular. So I don't know what will be next year. So this year it's strawberry rhubarb. I've made some raspberry rhubarb. We'll see how that sells. And I've made some blueberry rhubarb and that's a new one. So I don't know how that's going to sell. 
so we'll see about the rhubarb road. <laughs> Where are you sourcing the produce for your preserves? We have two large chains here in Colorado. One is King Supers, which is now a Kroger. And the other is Safeway. And then we have small stores like Sprouts. They all carry the same product, same brand. So who's ever got the best price gets my business that week. So this is interesting to me because you're buying from the grocery store. You're not connected with a local farm or whatever, but your products stand out. I mean, they've won prizes at the county fair. Why do you think your products... I mean, you're using the same ingredients that everybody else has access to. What what makes them so special or unique? I try to submit those products that are not common. Like, not everybody's going to make strawberry rhubarb. Not everybody is going to make the Black Forest Preserve. A lot of people will put in plain raspberry or plain cherry or peach butter, which I did submit and it did do well. But I don't pick things like grape and strawberry and raspberry and submit them, which may be why I've been lucky and, you know, have, have won many prizes for my, my different products. I'm careful. I don't you you know if there's a berry that's moldy it goes down the disposal i don't even think about pulling mold off and using it i don't know if that has something to do with it i really i honestly don't know i never stopped to think about it well what is the process like for when you make a new flavor like strawberry rhubarb i don't know how long you've had that flavor but do you go through a lot of iterations and tasting and trying different things before you finally land on the final creation? No. Um, part of cottage food here in Colorado says that you must use tested recipes. So these are recipes that have the proper pH or the proper amount of acid in them. And that prevents all of those bad little bugs like botulism and salmonella and E. coli and whatever else there is uh, from getting into the jellies and spoiling them. We don't want people to get sick. So all of the, all of the recipes that we use are tested. And if they are not tested, they must be tested by the health department. And approved. So knowing that these recipes are tested and they are for the most part from ball, they're pretty darn safe. And if something goes wrong, it's not the recipe, it is the producer. Having said that, I follow the recipes very strictly because I know I don't want somebody to get sick and I don't want to produce a product that is half baked. I want it to be 100% all the time. And I don't know if that has something to do with them being so great or they just start out as really good recipes. The other thing is I make sure that the fruit that I buy is ripe and, and that could affect what comes out at the other end also. Yeah, so you're using standardized recipes from the Ball book. What is, what is the name of that book? There are several ball books. The oh, 
and I can't even think of the names. And there's also Home Preserving that is produced by the University of Georgia, which is another perfect book. It has almost the same thing that the Ball book has. So either of those can be used. And they're really good for beginners because they walk you through everything and they explain the process and how to do it. And they have a dictionary in the back so that will help you with terminology. And they will, they have another index in the back, which talks about what you can substitute and a lot of other little, and they talk about altitude, which is a big thing because the the canning books are written for people who are not at altitude. And we're at 5,280 here in Denver. So I just figure on 6,000 feet. I just add an extra six minutes to the 10 minutes that it is called for in the recipe to keep it boiling. And also, if you are pressure canning, your poundage changes. Thankfully, I don't use a pressure cooker to do any of my canning. I just use a water bath canner and a timer, and that works great for me. Yeah, I think that it's when you get into the low acid range that most states don't even allow low acid products like canned vegetables. Mm -hmm. That's when they require the pressure canning method, right? Yes. And a part of the Cottage Food Act is that uh, we cannot can any vegetables, pure and simple. And there's no way around it except for pickling. Joanne, you were talking earlier about how you love being part of the community and you'd share tales about your adventures with other vendors. What are some of those tales? Do you have any memorable moments over the years that come to mind? Oh, <laughs> um, I lost a tent at one of the big markets last year. I didn't have enough weights on my tent and it blew over and the spokes bent. And everybody around me, the other vendors, all came over and to help put some weights on and help reset the tent and reset the tables and everything else that had turned over with the wind. But things like that make, make you very happy. Then these people weren't, I didn't know these people, but you just pitch in when something like that happens and it makes for good feelings. Um, a customer had bought some blackberry jam um, back in February and, I didn't remember who he was. And he sent me an email and said, I bought your wonderful blackberry jam. And now I want to buy some more and give it to my friends. And I just about fell off the chair because that was a great statement. And I'm a little skeptical of sharing things because I don't want people to think I'm tooting my own horn, but I shouldn't be. I do have a good product. And when other people tell me those things, that statements like that have been have happened to them, I'm there to support them. Um, you know, people, marmalade is another one. They hate marmalade if it's bitter. So I say, no, no, it's not bitter. 
It doesn't taste like Dundee. I've used normal navel oranges. And if you don't like it, bring it back. Well, nobody's ever come back with the jar. <laughs> they've, come, they've come back to order it. Um, what other things? Fun times at Boulder County Fair. Sharing experiences with other vendors. Some have had problems with their uh, jars sealing, and I've had that too. They just, for some reason, they just pop in the canner and you lose a jar. And we all laugh about it because it all, it always happens to all of us. It really, really does. And if you change a jar until you become accustomed to the feel of closing that jar, you're going to have lots of pop tops. <laughs> I was like everyone else was using the ball jars and then decided, well, I wanted to change the jars. It became a price point issue for me. And so I bought 300 jars and 300 caps. Not one jar broke except the one that I dropped outside on the concrete, but the caps popped off. <laughs> I must have lost at least a dozen jars because I didn't have the right feel. I didn't know what the right feel was when I closed the jar. So can you talk a little bit about that? You were using the more expensive brand name ball jars. And what did you switch to some generic brand? Where did you find them? How much did they cost in comparison? I'd be interested to hear all that stuff. Okay. I was using the ball jars and they were approximately $1.50 a jar. And when you're producing three and four and six, 700 jars a year, that becomes a big expense. So I went and looked for some other jars <clears throat> that were also eight ounces. And I found some at a company called Amen, A-M-E-N, packaging here in Denver. They did bring the jars in from overseas and the jars and lids together were not even a dollar. So right off the bat, I was saving approximately 75 cents on a jar. And that's a big amount when you're producing five or 600 jars a year and maybe more. I actually am bad. I never counted. I have continued to use these imported jars. I don't like importing them, but I do. And if Ball Jar would give me a break or they would lower their prices, I would go back to them. You need the loyalty discount coming from the ball company. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I need. <laughs> well, talk about what the pricing is like for the actual jars themselves. What are you selling your different products for? I started out at $7 a jar in 2014, and I had gone to all the stores to see what they sold an eight ounce jar of jam for. And between the big stores, which sold, you know, Smuckers or Welch's at $2 or $3 and Whole Foods or Sprouts, which sold them, sold their jars for 7 or $8, or even some of the, the products were $10. Um, I thought that $7 was a good place to start. And then as the taxes went up, I raised them to $7.50 and then to $8. And this year, 
I jumped the price from eight to 10. And the new jars happen to be nine ounces, so that's not so terrible. Nobody has balked at them at the price. Nobody's asked about the size of the jars because I have the ball jars the imp and the eight ounce imported jars and now the nine ounce jars and all three of them look very different. And no, nobody has said anything about the price. So I think that we'll just stick at $10 a jar for a while and see what happens. I sold 30 jars last Saturday at the farmer's market. So that's a pretty good sale for me. And that's in the middle of the whole pandemic where people might be a little bit more hesitant to come out to the market, right? Exactly. We're, we're getting a good showing. And every week it seems to be a little bit more, you know, it takes a little time for advertising to sink into people. But they're coming out, which is good. And, and a $300 day in four hours is a good day, I think. What's nice about your product is that it's got a long shelf life, right? I mean, does, does your jelly ever go bad? I assume it probably doesn't. It, it doesn't go bad, but it will lose the flavor. Okay, so I don't know if you want to consider that bad. It doesn't get moldy or salmonella or E. coli but it will lose its flavor over time. Now, cottage food, which bases everything off of the FDA, says that you can guarantee a year on the product if it's sealed. We could legitimately put on the label good for a year from date of manufacture. Now, I've had stuff in the refrigerator for over a year. Others have had stuff on their shelves that has been unopened for over a year. Sometimes it's lost its flavor, sometimes not. But for you, this means that you never have to deal with inventory that's gone bad. No, I don't. I don't produce enough to keep an inventory that long. I, I try to keep anywhere from 6 to 12 jars per flavor so that if I run out of an one, I don't have to rush during the week to remake it and remake five others because that's hard. I can make two batches a day and you only get about five or six jars depending on your fruit and how juicy your fruit is. <laughs> I've gotten nine, nine jars out of strawberries. How long is it taking you to make each batch? From start to finish, it takes... Uh, Somewhere between three and a half to four hours. And when I say start to finish, I am including washing the fruit, chopping the fruit, cooking it down and adding what has to be adding, added, jarring it, cleaning it, cooking it or canning it. And then the dirty job of washing everything. Now, that three to four hours, is that for one batch or for two batches? Because you said you can make two batches a day. That's one batch. So is it six to eight hours for two batches or is it more efficient than that? No, it's six to eight hours for two batches. What makes it more efficient is to having cleaned the fruit and cut it up and measured it beforehand. I will try to process fruit ahead of time. I'll clean it, I'll cut it up, and I will measure it out and put it in a baggie and toss it in the freezer. 
the baggie will have how much fruit is in there, two cups, four cups, strawberries, and the date that I processed it. So when I'm ready to make strawberry jam, I just have to go into the freezer and grab a bag that says 12 cups of strawberries and let it defrost a bit and then start making the jam. So you have about an hour that you cut out of the whole canning process because you've already pre-processed the fruit. So I have all kinds of things in the, all kinds of fruits in the freezer. Okay. So I just want to talk about the pricing. I'm a, I'm a numbers person. So I'm, I've been thinking about what the pricing that you're getting versus the amount of time you're putting into this. Cause it's quite a, quite a time intensive process. And I'm thinking if you sold 30 jars of jelly at the market, that's like five to six batches of, of jelly. Right. And that takes at least three hours each. So we're talking mm-hmm. about like 15, maybe up to 20 hours of processing time plus the six, five, six hours at the market. So when you get down to it, it's probably about 20 to 25 hours of time to even at your higher pricing of $10 a jar make $300. Is that accurate? Am I am I reading that right? <laughs> uh, I may. Yeah, you read it. You're, you're reading that kind of right. So it sounds like a labor of love to me more than an actual super profitable business. Being a cottage food producer is not a profitable business that I can figure out. Well, at least for the the jelly side of it. At least for the jelly. I just heard that some couple who were cottage food producers and they were making donuts and they both lost their jobs or one lost their job and the other one quit and they just delved right into making donuts and i think they're making them commercially now i'm not certain but they're everybody's buying them they're just doing a bang up business i think it's easier to transport donuts than it is jars jars are heavy especially if they're loaded with jam um Although donuts go bad, that's one huge difference. They go stale pretty quick. So They do. They do. So I, I don't know. I haven't heard the second chapter in the story. Well, I yet. just wanted to ask about this because I've seen a number of jelly businesses start and then stop. And I think it's hard because when you factor in the amount of money that you should be getting for your time, and then you have to deal with the perceptions of customers who are dealing with grocery store commercially factory produced products you might just not be able to mark it up enough to actually make it a super profitable venture so is it something that you would recommend would you recommend people start a preserve or jelly business it's not profitable for me and if there is a bit of profit I could probably buy a jar of jelly. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, A couple of years ago, a friend wanted to buy one of my products. And I knew that uh, selling her eight jar, you know, eight ounce jars was just not going to work. So we've, David sat, my husband, David sat down and did all the numbers and we had to charge her some phenomenal price for a quart sized jar of, the jam that she wanted 
And for, for her, that was crazy. As good as my jam was, she could go buy two quarts at Costco for the same amount. So price-wise, it's, you don't make money. It's, it is a labor of love. It's a labor of fun. Yeah. So I want to ask, I mean, if you're not making a lot of money then, but you've been doing this for multiple years now. So what, why do you do it? What's, what's the driving motivation behind it? It makes me feel productive. I am a senior citizen. I am retired. And what am I going to do? I've never been a golfer. I did play some tennis in my day. But I don't work all day. So this gives me something to do. And I feel that it's productive. I'm doing something. And then I go out and I sell it, which is productive. And it's always nice to see a bottom line of $300, (laughs) even though I know I owe it. And the credit card says $400. (laughs) But um, I don't know. Seeing people and hearing people come back to me and say, gee, that was really great. Do you have any more? It's a good feeling. Simple as that. It's really nice to hear people think that your product, that which you produced, you labored over, you loved over, that somebody else likes it enough to come back and buy some more of it. I have one client who... I met years ago at that farmer's market where we met and she calls twice a year and says, what have you got? And she will buy $150 worth of jelly twice a year. And she uses it, you know, at home and she gives it as gifts and it must be good if she keeps coming back. So that makes it nice. That that's a good feeling. That's why I do it. It's fun. Well, and I and I appreciate hearing the different perspectives about why people run their cottage food business because there are a variety of reasons why people run cottage food businesses, and sometimes those reasons supersede the money aspect of it. So I'm just thinking about for you, the price isn't as big of an issue, right? The amount of money that you're making isn't a driving motivated motivating factor. So maybe you have kind of kept doing the same thing you've been doing, going to the markets, making the product in the same way. But do you think that maybe if you wanted to invest a lot more in marketing, have a, I don't know, it doesn't seem like you have a website as far as I could tell. No, I don't have time to keep it up. (laughs) (laughs) So if you did a lot more marketing and then say started making bigger batches, there might be a way, I don't know, you tell me, but there might be a way to become more efficient or more effective with the processing or the time, maybe the the sourcing of products. I mean, you're you're paying grocery store pricing and I don't know, maybe if, if you were more price motivated, you would have found wholesale accounts through farms or something like that to make it a more profitable endeavor? Most of the fruit that I buy is on sale. Two six-ounce containers of raspberries for $5 is very cheap. (laughs) I have walked away from pears. I have walked away from apples because I will not pay the price of $1.89 for a pound 
for pears. We just don't have apple butter that week, or we don't have uh, ginger pear butter that week. Maybe if I was more motivated, maybe if I had more people who could work for me, I could do better. So yeah, the money just sort of, I thought it was a good idea. <laughs> and then I realized that, nah, I'm not going to make any money out of this. <laughs> <laughs> well, it just probably gets down to preserves being more of a commodity type product. I mean, you actually do a pretty good job of changing it up. I mean, you, you have some unique flavors, but it's not like a, a custom decorated item, right? That has a strong value add with the artistry of the creator, if that makes sense. Yes. It's not Meraki cakes and bakes. <laughs> <laughs> I try to make something that's a little bit different, like the ginger pear. And then people, you know, they just want and love apple butter. And then when peaches are in season here in Colorado, they want peach jam. They want peach jelly. They want peach butter with and without rum. So you, I, I try to gear to what people want. I'm not making any money out of this. That's for sure. <laughs> Well, you, you're at markets. I mean, you're around produce, I assume. Have you talked with farms or farmers and tried to see what the pricing would be like if you went with a local farm versus going to the store? Actually, the guy who does fruit at the farmer's market that I am at, it's Forte Farms. And he's been around for like 25 or 30 years, maybe even longer. I buy my peaches from him because I just like his product. He, I do get a break. And then if I, he's got an outlet. If I go to the outlet, I get a better break. <laughs> Going to the outlet is time consuming. Also, they're usually not next door to me living in the city. Here in Denver, we don't have that many farms that are in the city. There, there are ways out. <laughs> And that's a consideration. Whereas I can jump in the car and, and go to the King Supers or the Sprouts and come back again in maybe 45 minutes, as opposed to two hours out, two hours back. So it, it, it's time is, is a big consideration. It's there, it's convenient. So I do it. And um, I'm probably not the best business person in the world. But I enjoy being at the market. I enjoy the adulation. Um, I enjoy the community. And that's all a good thing. That's all positive. Oh, yeah. You do a great job with your business, Joanne. And I only ask the questions just because I think that someone who is thinking about starting this kind of business would like to know would like to know what they need to be thinking about as they get into pricing and, and those kinds of things. Absolutely. There are a lot of resources that have to be looked into. And then we haven't even talked about what instruments you need, what pots and pans and cups and measuring cups and measuring spoons and graters and just everything that you have in your kitchen has to be bought new again for your cottage food. And that comes down to why? Contamination. 
you don't want to use the pan or pot that you use to boil the hot dogs for boiling up your jelly. Pots and pans should be non-reactive. Aluminum is not a good resource, nor are any of the coated pots and pans. The pots and pans that are non-reactive, like stainless steel, don't absorb anything. So it goes back to cross-contamination. A stainless steel pot, you can just take a Brillo pad or an SOS pad and scrub it good and clean, and it, it doesn't react to the acids. I know that the the equipment being kept separate, that's certainly a best practice and recommended in terms of preventing cross-contamination. And some states actually require that the equipment be kept separate. And I'm trying to remember, is that an actual legal requirement for Colorado or is it just a, a recommended best practice? It's a recommended best practice in the food safety training that Colorado State University gives, and I found it to be very good. There, In, in Colorado, you can become a, a cottage food producer by taking various courses. One, and I think it's the best, is the, the Colorado Cottage Food Producers Food Safety Training, which is given by Colorado State University. The CSU course is, uh, they tell me it's $40. For a four-hour course, you're with three masters in food science people whose focus is food safety. You're in a classroom. You have interaction with the teachers, with the other people. And I just think that that's the best way to learn. And when you take the CSU course, they're gearing it to the law and guiding you to what you can and cannot do under cottage food law here in Colorado. And I think that's important. That's very important. And, you, you know, you, you meet others who are doing the same thing as you or who are not doing the same thing as you and who've had experiences in the past. And you can call on them if you need help or you want to recommend them. We have a new, and we have a gal who I met, I guess, a year ago, and she makes ghee. She had it tested, she had it approved, and the health department here in the state of Colorado said, "Yes, you can make it." And now she is producing ghee and doing quite well. Yeah, she's the first person I've ever heard making ghee under the Kaj Food Law, but it's it's culturally significant for her being an Indian cuisine item and. I've occasionally had to make a recipe that called for ghee, and it's something I never have on hand. I think you can make it at home, but it's probably not nearly as good as hers. Well, there's nothing as good as a homemade product. And I think, you know, part of what makes cottage food really important to the public is the fact that you can stand there and say, at least I can with my jellies and jams and preserves and butters, there's no junk in here. <laughs> and there isn't. There's no corn syrup. There's no high fructose corn syrup. There are none of the other chemicals that are or additives or preservatives. Everything is fresh and natural. 
Granted, the other side of the coin is that it doesn't last a whole lot long time, a year, and maybe that's about it. But you start off by saying, and it's junk free. We have no junk jelly here at this booth. And the customer laughs and their eyes light up and they like that idea that they're getting a pure product. You earlier, you were talking about your orange marmalade and how it is uh, not bitter. And you're going to laugh at this, but believe it or not, I, I still had your unopened jar of marmalade in the fridge because I'm not a fan of marmalade because it is bitter, <laughs> right? It's bitter. But so when you said that, I was like, oh, maybe I should try that. <laughs> I just, I just never gotten around to opening it. This is probably what is it? Your What's the date? There should oh, be a there, date on it. Oh, there is a date on it. Oh my gosh, it's um, it's a, it's about a year and a half old, December twenty first, two thousand eighteen. So, <laughs> <laughs> and you've had it in the refrigerator. I have. I've had it in the refrigerator, but I just tried it, and yes. it's it's got to be the best marmalade I've ever tasted. You, sir. Because it, it is a little bit bitter. Like, I mean, it is, okay. it's made out of orange, right? Yes. So it's got a little bit of that bitterness. But I would, I mean, I'm going to eat this. Your other jelly, by the way, I think you gave me the triple berry jelly, and that did not last a long time at all. So this probably isn't going to last very much longer now that it's opened. But I can I can confirm in the moment right here that you're making good stuff and you probably should be charging twice the price for it all, but uh, you probably can't, unfortunately. <laughs> no, I don't think I could sell it. <laughs> but, uh, oh, well, we'll have to get you some more. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to get you some more. When you need a break from that charming, lovely Ray. <laughs> and my son. Sit your... yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Put him to bed and sit yourself down with a cup of tea and a toasted English muffin with marmalade on it. Oh. <laughs> we do need a break sometimes from that little boy. He's now walking and he's just turned a year old. So he's uh, he keeps us on our toes these days. I'll bet he's a bright little thing, too. Curious? Is he a curious little one? Yeah, he always seems to get into anything that's new. So I'm going to need to show him, I'm going to show him this jar of marmalade because he'll probably find that really fascinating. And he actually does eat oranges. So I'll probably let him, let him have some of this and he'll probably think it's great. Oh, I'd love to hear that. <laughs> I'd love to hear that. I should, I should send you some, some other stuff that might be, you know, more acceptable to his palate at his young age, of course. Who knows? Like I said, I he, he'll eat oranges straight, so I can't imagine why he wouldn't like this, which is not nearly as bitter as a as a plain orange. Really? Hmm. Okay. Well, there's a lot of, unfortunately, there's a lot of sugar in there. Uh, um, yeah. Well, he loves sugar. <laughs> <laughs> we don't let him have very much sugar, so I, I probably won't give him very much of this, but I'll, I'll let him taste it. He'll probably think it's great. Uh, well, we got off track. It, it's We've been talking for a while, Joanne, and um, before we go, I just was wondering if you had any advice that you would give to somebody starting a cottage food business. Oh, boy. 
no, let's see, you should know going into it that like any other business, it's going to cost you money in the beginning and that you are going to make mistakes and that's okay because you learn from them. And there are all kinds, of, you're, you're starting a business. So you need to know the tax laws and the other laws related to your business. And that can get very complicated, but there are people out there to help you. And uh, people like yourself, you just have to go onto the Colorado producers, Facebook group, whatever, whatever it's called. Yeah, Ask Joanne. I'm there. Ask Joanne. <laughs> Ask Joanne. <laughs> here, in, here in Colorado, there's a fabulous piece of information. It, it's Department of Revenue 1002. And what it does is it lists sales and taxes for the whole state. And they revise this instrument, for lack of a better word, <laughs> twice a year, because they've, I guess that's when they up and down the taxes. And it has all kinds of taxes, like the scientific tax and the city tax and the county tax, some of which you don't pay to the county, but you have to pay them in your state tax. And, you know, rural taxes and our RTD tax <laughs> and the, these 17 pieces of paper have so much information in them that they I have I have started to call them the Colorado Cottage Food Bible because if you don't know it's around you're going to be so lost and having a good accountant who understands the cottage food business and the law mostly is a good person to have in your back pocket know that cottage food is a labor of love it can be a lot of fun going to county fairs and festivals and farmers markets can be a lot of fun if you're in you know if you're in that sort of mindset for the most part people are friendly they're curious they will come back and tell you that something is really good Nobody's really told me anything was really bad. And and just know it really is a labor of, it's a labor of love. You're not going to make a whole lot of money. And you should pick your product wisely. Making jelly is costly, both financially and time-wise. It just is one of those things. So try it. If you don't like it, well, you've tried it and move on to the next thing but i think you'll get caught and that's a good catch at least for me it was you you'll get caught up in the uh, cottage food industry you mean yes well thank you so much for coming on today joanne and sharing a little bit about your business and what you've learned over the years um how could people reach out to you if they want to contact you? The best way to, to reach me is via email, which is jellyjarllc, that's one word, at gmail.com. Perfect. Well, thank you again for coming on and 
Always appreciate talking to you. Oh, you're so welcome. Take care, David. Bye-bye. That wraps up another episode of the Forger Podcast. It's fun to hear how much joy and purpose this business gives Joanne in retirement and how involved she is with the cottage food community in Colorado. If you are thinking about starting a cottage food business of your own, head on over to forger.com to check out your state's cottage food law. For more information about this episode, go to forger.com slash podcast slash 12. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you in the next episode.